Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the DOGS program. The Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools are here every Saturday at 12 noon to defend and to promote public education. That's education that's public in purpose and outcome. It's publicly accessible to all children. It should be publicly owned and controlled, and it should be the only one that is publicly funded because it's the only one that can be publicly accountable. We have a website at www.adogs.info and this is our press release 740. Federal election year and the state aid auction ritual has started already. Or has it? Bill Shorten has introduced the election year state aid auction by promising to give the Catholic school sector an extra $250 million in the first two years of a new Labor government and billions over the next decade. This week, Shorten wrote to the Australian Catholic Bishops' Conference Chairman, Dennis Hart, our very own Dennis Hart down here in Melbourne, promising the sector would be $250 million better off in the first two years of a Labor government and billions over the decades. That was in the letter. We're committed to funding all schools based on a proper assessment of their need while also supporting parental choice, he wrote. Sorry to let you know, Bill, but the Catholic vote isn't what it used to be. It went off to Mr Abbott and the Liberal Party long ago. And you can't reconcile looking after all the children and parental choice. Doesn't work, hasn't worked, never will work. These days, education votes are to be found elsewhere, even within the savvy middle class of Batman. It's interesting that the figure of $250 million is that used by Stephen Elder of the Victorian Catholic Education Commission as a figure he thought should be taken from wealthy, overfunded private schools and given to his struggling Catholic schools. But the real question is, what struggling Catholic schools? The only schools struggling for funds in Australia at the current time are disadvantaged public schools. The year is 2018, not 1969. And at least three doomed needs policies later, 
Whitlam's in 1973, Howard's in 2004, and Gonski's 2011 1.0, currently being morphed into 2018 2.0. The funding situation is more glaringly unequal than it's ever been since 1848, so so much for all the needs policies of the last half century. Even those who promoted needs policies like Chris Bonner and Lindsay Connors are fed up. Well, who's Chris Bonner and Lindsay Connors? Chris Bonner was a public school principal and he's now the fellow of the Centre for Policy Development and Lindsay Connors has held senior education policy positions at both Commonwealth and state levels and she is associated, I think, with one of the universities in Sydney. But Lindsay Connors started out as a parent representative on the Schools Commission and she assisted Joan Kerner when she changed the no-state-aid position of the parent organisations into one supporting a needs policy. Uh, You see, the dogs have been around for a long time and they've been watching the Lindsay Connors of this world. But Bonner and Connors fulminate against the special deals that have dogged all genuine attempts to introduce the concept of needs rather than greeds into Australian schooling. Dogs might take time out to say, we told you so 50 years ago. But what is of more interest is Bonner and Connors' presentation of plain funding facts that prove that it costs taxpayers as much, if not more, to support the private sector as it does the public sector. And even Connors is prepared to say that if there was a Goulburn so-called Catholic school strike today, like there was in 1964, the cost factor would be quite different. Bonners and Connors in the Guardian article they wrote say... In dollar terms, the craziness unleashed by the special deals now reveal that if the Catholic school students in the New South Wales town of Goulburn went to the local public schools, Australian taxpayers would almost certainly come out financially ahead. Why is Goulburn interesting? That's where state aid to church schools symbolically began back in 1962 after the bishops threatened to close their schools and send their flock to the local public schools. Well, Connor should actually do better history than she has because the public schools actually did uh, enrol the Catholic children of Goulburn and a lot of the Catholic children didn't want to go back to their schools. They quite liked it in the public schools. So there is another story to the Goulburn strike of 62. But Connors and uh, Bonner say that it might make some sense if they had to meet the same and often expensive obligations as public schools, but of course private schools don't. They fall well short. They choose where and who they serve. Their fees ensure that in almost every community they enrol students who are more advantaged get into their schools. And that's easy to check on the My School website. While many Catholic schools do their very best, as a system they aren't obliged to enrol or continue serving any student who might pose an extra challenge. They can just send them off. They can just expel them and send them to the local state school. And any teacher in the local state school 
uh, knows these children very well and they get a good, a good go when they turn up at the doors of the state school. The Labor Party still wants to hand an extra 250 million and billions over the coming decade. So the next obvious step, if you're going to learn anything from our history in the 19th century, is to take them over. We're paying for them. Why not run them and make them open to all children? and decide that independent schools become just that, independent of the taxpayer and the government. But no. Unfortunately, Connors and Bonner are still hoping, against hope, that a government-appointed National Schools Resources Board will come up with recommendations for a genuine needs policy which will provide crumbs from the table of the wealthy for that of the disadvantaged. I think it's time that we stopped talking about needs myself and started talking about the rights of every child to have a good public education in this country. When will the Lindsay Connors and Bonners of this world ever learn? The private school lobby groups, and most particularly that state within our state, the Catholic Church, have an educational philosophy which is diametrically opposed to any kind of policy providing equal opportunities for all children. They cannot, they will not, and they never will, they never have, and they don't believe that they should provide equal opportunities because they're not open to every child. They select children and they select children, as we all know, on the basis of their colour, their creed or their parents' ability to pay. The only policy that has ever worked and is in working in countries like Germany and Finland is public funding of public schools that are open to all and private funding for private privilege. And that is our um, press release 740. So if you want to read it, you can go to www.adogs.info. And if you want to check out on all of the different statistics and facts and figures, and we'll be talking about those a bit later today, you can go to that web page and go to the statistics page because there's lots and lots of facts and figures on that particular page on our website. Thank you very much, Jane. Listen to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial, and we'll be returning, returning to more ideas and thoughts on education policy in Australia after these messages. Are you doing the right thing? Marxism 18 is Australia's biggest radical left-wing conference happening March 29th to April 1st in Melbourne. The conference will feature founding editor of Jacobin magazine, Bhaskar Sunkara, Australian writer Helen Razor, Palestinian activist Huwaida Araf, and films celebrating 50 years since the struggles of 1968. Join radicals and activists for political discussion in over 100 sessions across four days. Tickets start at $25 and are available at marxismconference.org Red Flag Press is a 3CR supporter Welcome back to the Dogs Program on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. You're listening about education issues and indeed how it goes into the political sphere here on 3CR. Um, Jean? 
Yes, one of our listeners has sent in some very interesting material from Ballarat. Here's something from the Courier in Ballarat. And Mr Shorten should be aware that this information is going around uh, fairly regularly about the inequalities in funding between government and private schools. Uh, Mr Elder made a mistake in crying poor. How much do Ballarat schools receive in government funding? New data shows just how much the government funding windfall is for Ballarat schools. At a glance, we're told by the Courier on March the 13th that the latest My School data shows the breakdown in federal and state government funding to all Ballarat schools for the 2016 school year. The federal government injected almost $55 million into the city's six private schools in 2016, including three Catholic secondaries, according to the latest My School figures. Ballarat's five state secondary schools, including Yule Park P28 Community College, shared in $50 million from the Victorian government as their primary funding source. Figures are a snapshot and all principals the Courier spoke to said it was important to consider both federal and state funding combined before comparing schools. Funding can take into consideration but is not limited to family socioeconomic status, rurality, rurality, that is whether or not they're in a rural, rural area, indigenous students and migrants. This is also based on how much the federal government has worked out to be the cost of educating a child, which according to them is 13700 per secondary student. And uh, we're told that St Patrick's College, which had 1376 full-time students in 2016, topped the federal funding for Ballarat schools with 13.1 million that year and a combined 16.6 million federal and state funding. And this was just under 11,800 combined per student. Catholic Education Office, however, distributes government funding between its Victorian schools and St Pat's acting headmaster Stephen Hill said this in a variety of ways, is done in a variety of ways. He says predominantly this funding is used to pay salaries for teaching and support staff, but also to support projects such as the college's Indigenous program. Well, it would be interesting to know how many Indigenous children they have. Loretto College and Damascus College also said funding is predominantly used for salaries, which are on parity with states, teachers and curriculum programs. Damascus principal Matthew Byrne said fees helped to bridge the gap between combined funding and education costs. But um, independent schools, we're told, receive about half the combined government funding per student of Catholic and state schools in Victoria, according to the latest Productivity Commission data. Well, that's highly questionable, the, according to Trevor Cobalt. But we're told that Ballarat Clarendon College received 9.67 million federal funding for 1416 students in grades prep to year 12, and the college's funding per student was 59% in fees, averaging 11,697 per student. But Ballarat Grammar had 
10.6 million in funding for 1385 students prepped to year 12 with 57% recurring income from fees averaging 12,038 per student. Um, I'm assuming that 12,038 per student um, is from the 10.6 million in uh, federal and uh, state funding, but it doesn't. It, it, those figures are a bit are a bit loose, I believe. However, they're interesting, and they do not include the exemptions or taxation expenditures which in all of these schools enjoy. Uh, something very interesting, however, just a very interesting point. Remember a few weeks ago uh, we, we discovered that with um, councils there uh, is the interesting information being given to Fairfax journalists about the valuation of in, in, in the case of the Roman Catholic Church, their properties, and that they have about 30 billion throughout uh, Australia, and I think it was 9 billion in Victoria. But they have exemptions from rates. But a little church uh, that I'm aware of was told that because they are exempt from rates and don't pay rates, they aren't allowed to have a greenie bin. Isn't that interesting? The councils are very aware that uh, religious groups and schools and others do not pay rates. So when it comes to the crunch, a little church isn't allowed to have a greenie bin because they don't pay for it. So I think that's a very interesting... Uh, yes, from the micro to the macro, isn't it really, yeah, James? Really yeah. Look... You're talking about that article having rubbery figures. Um, the rubbery figures that are available to the journalists um, are not only are not just produced that way by accident. It's, it's really quite simple. Now, last week on the program, as our listeners might know, we actually did an in-depth analysis of what's going on up there at Ballarat High School. Brilliant high school, doing extraordinary things, doing extraordinary things with $12,000 per kid up there. Actually, it's 11800 as we said last week, but doing extraordinary things in a high school with kids. Now, down the road is St. Patrick's. Um, it's a school of similar size, slightly smaller, about 50 of those kids, but similar size. They're doing the same thing in terms of taxpayers' money, taxpayers' money, with the same amount, in fact, slightly more. Slightly more taxpayers' money goes to each student at St. Patrick's than goes to the kids at Ballarat High. Take this is excluding, excluding, Take excluding the amount of money that the parents contribute. So the parents pay fees on top of that. Now, I don't know how a civilised society tolerates it. I just don't know how a civilised society tolerates segregating children on the basis of ability to pay, ability of the parents to pay, combined with segregating children on the basis of the religion that their parents or, or the beliefs of the parents that, 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 that they choose to hold, hold and then um, impart to their children, some would say inflict, some would say impart to their children through an education system that's primarily directed through one particular sectarian branch of the Christian faith. And the government, of course, subsidises to an equal amount. It's not even a freedom of choice argument anymore. It's a freedom to stuff over everyone else, basically, I mean, the idea is, well, the money should go to my child and then I'll top it up and it saves the government money. It doesn't even save the government money. Now, talking about the rubbery fingers that Jean was talking about, we don't know 
how much of the money that's allocated to the kids at St. Patrick's gets to the kids at St. Patrick's because it doesn't go straight to the kids at St. Patrick's. So, for instance, the government allocates you know, 12000 or so dollars to each kid at Ballarat High. That money goes to that kid in that school. That's the way it works. Perfectly accountable within a state education system, as it should be. Because that's headmaster's uh, got to account for every penny of that, otherwise he's got problems. Well, the headmaster does, the government does. If there's something wrong, the minister has to resign. It's all perfectly accountable. However, for the kids at St Patrick's, the money doesn't go to the, doesn't go to the school. Oh, no. The money goes to a separate bureaucracy, which is paid for, by the way, by the taxpayer. The separate bureaucracy is not a bureaucracy of the government. It's a bureaucracy of the Catholic Church. It goes to the Catholic Education Office. It goes to run. It goes to Stephen Elder's mob. Now, Stephen Elder answers directly and specifically to the bishop. Dennis Hart. Dennis Hart. So the money so goes Ms. to Dennis so Hart. So does Bill Shorten, apparently. Goes to Dennis Hart. The money doesn't go to the kids at the, the child at St Patrick's. The money doesn't go to the principal. The principal is not accountable for the money that's spent because we don't know how much money the principal was given by the bishop through Stephen Elder and the Catholic Education Office. That process is deliberately, functionally, and over a very long period of time, opaque. I cannot find out. The only person that could find out was the Auditor General a couple of years ago. And when he did find out, he says, this is ridiculous. We've given you money to educate that child at St. Patrick's um, School up there in Ballarat, and the money never arrived. And Stephen Ellis says, oh, you can't say that. You're being, like, discriminatory against stuff, and we're Catholic, and we, we know better anyway. And his argument functionally was, we know how to spend taxpayers' money better than the government does, so you should just let us spend it the way we want. Now, the kids of St. Patrick's maybe got the money, or they maybe didn't, I don't know. Although I can tell you, just as one example, the child who goes to the Catholic school called Simmons College in West Melbourne, those children do not receive the taxpayer dollars. We know this because it was audited by the Auditor General. They got 60 cents in every dollar that was allocated by the government for their education. They were shortchanged. They've been shortchanged for years. Back in the day... Uh, these inner city schools were the poor parish schools that we all had to weep over and give the money to. So Simmons College should at least be um, getting uh, their whatever has been um, no, they don't. allocated. No, no, they haven't. So you, every now and then you get a little snapshot into the internal workings of what the bishop says to Stephen Elder, who says to the Catholic Education Office, who says to the principal who spends the money on the child, because that is an entirely separate bureaucracy that has nothing to do with taxpayers. That is the fundamental problem as to why that journalist who wrote that article can't get hold of the actual numbers. That's why they have, they have to be a robbery, because they are opaque. Well, getting to the micro, Robert, I wish that Simmons College would get its proper amount of money so that it could fix up its drainage system, because it's causing problems for the locals in that area. Indeed, from the macro to the micro. We do, we do it all here at the Dogs Program. Who you're listening to, we are the defenders of government schools. We'll oh. be returning after just a few more messages. Want to support 3CR's diverse and independent voices? Donate now by calling 9419 8377 or donate online at www.3cr.org.au or post us a cheque or money order. 
to Post Office Box 1277, Collingwood 3066. And welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. Um, in a little while, we'll be talking about a great state school, but just before that, we've got more issues to deal with. Jean? Oh, yes, I wanted to take issue with your statement about in a civilised society. Uh, I'm just wondering what kind of civilised society um, uh, produces a school, a private school, where a deputy headmaster cuts off a boy's hair and then the boys and uh, parents are all out in stri- on strike because the headmaster then sacks him. Uh, I, I, it's a very, very interesting... Um, well, I don't think it's very civilised, but it's a very interesting thing that's happening at uh, Trinity. What's your take on it, Robert? Well, as someone who's interested in anthropology, I find the study of Australian society absolutely fascinating from the outside. And in Australia, it's been, my, it's been my sort of observation as an amateur anthropologist that Australia has been desperately trying to develop its own aristocracy from nothing. The has and the have-nots, the born-tos and the born-not-tos. And the best and quickest way, of course, you can create yourself an oligarchy or an aristocracy, the nobles and the peasants, is through an education system. What you have to do is separate the children out. It's called pretentiousness. So, well... Yeah, uh, well, it, it's a very particular Australian way of going about it. If you want to create the haves and the have-nots, you separate them out into different schools. Now, the school Jean's referring to, of course, is a school called Trinity Grammar, and if you haven't heard about it and you're not from Melbourne, it's a really weird situation. Trinity Grammar is, is, is a wonderful school full of wonderful children doing wonderful things. They all have wonderful values, and it costs an enormous amount of money to go in there. And if you are in there and you spent you know, $30,000 to get your child in there, it has to be wonderful, otherwise you'll be wasting your $30,000 a year. So it's all wonderful. There's no poor people there. Now, there are some, but they're very, very smart. Very, very smart scholarship children there at Trinity Grammar. Um, and they have what they call values. Values. And the values are reflected in many ways. And one of the ways reflected, these values are reflected is you have to have hair um, that does not touch your collar. If your hair is so long that it touches your collar, you are sent home to organise yourself so your hair does not touch your collar, and then you can come back and be part of the values in the school. Very, very simple. There are other things as well, but hair, length, is one of the values that Trinity Grammar holds dear. That sounds Now, whether like, that's bad or good... like someone's gestalt to me... <laughs> Well, you see, this is the peculiar anthropological nature of it. I, I, I find it fascinating, You're looking from the outside. You are creating a set of values that have, we call it virtue signalling, but definitely signalling. If someone wears their uniform in a particular way and their hair, color, and their hair cut and colour is of a certain type and appropriateness, then that is a reflection of the values of the school. Now, this vice-principal, Brownie we call him, because that's his name, um, has been there for some time and is, um, by all reports, much loved much loved by the students. He's a nice teacher, a nice fellow, and sometimes being loved by the students and, and being a good teacher are different things. But to all accounts, this man is, is a genuine educator. I've never met him, but I do know people who do know him, and they vouch for him. Before school photos, school photos, of course, is the day where everyone lines up and has their photo taken for the school, which is a sort of ultimate projection of the values. A student turned up with a hair, hair on their head that touched their collar. Um, Brownie decided there and then in front of his peers to cut his hair before the photo was taken in the playground. 
Uh, this was filmed, as it so often is these days, by the other students, put on the internet and go, ha ha, brownies, cutting some bloke's hair. The principal got, was, became aware of it and said, you can't do that, that's, that's, that's child abuse, you can't do that, we're going to have to sack you. And they sacked him. The school community exploded to, in support of the teacher. And I go, this is crazy. And so 1,500 parents attended a rally. Thousands of children went down to the Oval and went on, on strike saying, we want Brownie, reinstate Brownie. And now the principal and the entire board of the school are being called upon to resign by a very large proportion of the school's population. They have revolted. The alumni. The alumni are very, very grumpy. Mm-hmm. I thought, why? Why is it that the alumni at Trinity College are so grumpy that a teacher cuts a child's hair and then got sacked for it? Before I tell you why the alumni are grumpy, I'd just like to, if you're, if, if you're aware of how things work in schools, and indeed in secondary schools, if you're a teacher and you come up to a child in the playground with a pair of scissors and cut their hair, that is a sacking offence. <laughs> uh, you don't do that. That's, well, you can talk about human rights and human liberties, sir, you can't infringe upon my rights. Yeah, that's probably fair. You know, cutting someone's hair against their will um, is, is not... Is, is not an appropriate thing. Um, it just so happens, by the way, that the child whose hair was cut has come out and said, well, no, it was perfectly appropriate. I don't want him to get sacked. I was a bit grumpy at the time, but now I changed my mind. Um, and really, I did tacitly give him my permission to do that, so that was all right. So, you know, there's been a bit of backtracking here. But the alumni are grumpy because the current principal, the person who sacked Brownie, the person who they now demand resign, has been having a strict, somewhat egalitarian policy in terms of who gets to enrol in Trinity. And a large number of the Trinity old boys and girls, old boys I should say, are now getting quite upset because they're finding that their uncle, or sorry, their nephew or their son, um, is not necessarily getting a place at Trinity when they would have before. Because, of course, as you know with aristocracy and oligarchies, who knows who is more important than who knows what. That is the principle of an aristocracy. Who knows who is more important than who knows what. And so the new principal had a new meritocratic approach to education, <laughs> which, which cut, across, cut across the idea of the old boys and the alumni um, sort of basically being having free, you know, free, free rent to enrol their particular child because they had been an alumni, perhaps at a discount. You know how it works these days. And so it's a fast, it, for me as an anthropologist looking on, it's watching this sort of, well, in the France they call it the nouveau riche or something like that. This, this, this budding aristocracy, this, this budding group of people for whom which school they go to is, is, is a conversation opener. As a historian, um, I think that perhaps the headmaster just got himself up to around about 1850 uh, when, <laughs> when Queen Victoria's uh, husband yeah. uh, decided that perhaps meritocracy was worth something after because, because there was so much corruption and ridiculous nonsense going on in the English bureaucracy. That's right. So it's a fascinating story. It's not, not, it's not really directly about policy. I, I just find it interesting the way education plays out in so many spheres mm-hmm. and how the idea of buying yourself into privilege, which is functionally what a large, large number of these um, wealthy private schools are doing, buying yourself into privilege always has to be masked. It has to be hidden in a place like Australia at the moment because, you know, we have things like, still have this residual idea about a fair go. It's residual, but it's there. So you can't go out and say, well, yes, of course, I'm much more wealthy and important and interesting than you because I went to Trinity. If you come out and say that in, in mixed company, you are going to be called a W dot 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 N-K-E-R. You will, because you are. But if you can talk about it in terms of values, 
if you can talk about it in terms of collective discipline, if you can talk about it in terms of um, uh, doing what's right and, and, and having a good idea about what charity work and the importance of it is, if you can talk about those things, then that's actually virtue signaling. That's, that's a way of letting everyone know that you're that sort of person. But it's N-O, really N-O-C-D, isn't it? Not our class, dear. Yeah, yeah, but, but you can't say that directly. And so this, whole, whole, this whole debate, this whole debate I think is fascinating, is watching this play out in microcosm in a little school. But yes, look, on to more important and interesting things, I think. On to more important and interesting things. We'll come to that after. Again, some music now, I think. We'll Let's have, have some Carmen. Oh, 
Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. It's good to have your company. Um, we haven't really spoken about school chaplaincy for some time. It was a big deal back in the early um, teens, in the early 20 teens, when Williams um, took the school chaplaincy a whole idea to court. To remind you what a school chaplain is, it's a paid by the government post for a religious person of an indeterminate denomination, usually, but not always Christian, to come into a state school and to minister to children in a public school. But it's come up again this week, uh, Robert, even in the Herald Sun of all things. The Herald Sun has got a fascinating um, article by Susie O'Brien in opinion. Uh, This is on... uh, this week's, it's during, Tuesday, March the 13th, on page 21. And uh, she's very, very uh, definite that, um, that the High Court has struck down the Chaplain Program as illegal twice in 2012 and 14, but like a bad smell, it's still lingering. And she's saying there's just no place for it in a secular education system. And this is in... The Herald Sun. Well, it's rather interesting because this is in response to some um, behind-the-scenes lobbying that's going on in Canberra as we speak. Mm-hmm. Because the behind-the-scenes lobbying in Canberra wants to boost the funding for chaplains by an extra $250 million um, into the budget going forward, the, the budget that's yet to be released. Because there's a push-on within the federal government to renew and to significantly boost what they are now calling, the lobbyists, a absolutely essential school chaplaincy program. We need counsellors. We don't need chaplains. Uh, not, 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 not the Herald Sun and Murdoch. We need well-qualified well counsellors who are experienced teachers. That's what we used to have. We called them guidance officers. Mm. Well, Fairfax Media have learnt that over a dozen, in fact dozens, of Liberal MPs are lobbying senior ministers to increase funding for the $250 million scheme by another 25%, making it permanent and then indexing funding into the future. Now, the controversial initiative to insert religious chaplains into state schools, which, as Jean was quite saying, was twice twice ruled invalid by the High Court, was introduced by John Howard. We're still getting over him. Amended, but continued under Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard, and then cemented in the 2014 budget um, by, guess who? Tony Abbott. They got around the um, High Court rulings with uh, Section 96, which is the way state aid was given in the first place. And so unions, psychologists, the dogs and other academics have called for the program to be completely scrapped on the ground that excludes, specifically excludes, secular youth workers and risks chaplains crossing a line into proselytising, which they say they don't, but they do. Funding for the chaplaincy program runs out actually at the end of 2018. So, unless it's reinstated, it will just peter out. But Luke Howarth, a Queensland Liberal National Party MP, has recruited and supported at least 30 colleagues from the Liberal government in a petition to the Treasurer and Education Minister Birmingham calling for the program not to just be maintained but significantly expanded and extended. And, of course, to have that significant increase. Now, in response to this, Jean has said the Herald Sun's up and running and the Fairfax Median's up and running, but Luke Beck is up and running as well. Now, who is Luke Beck? Luke Beck, who's writing, actually, in the Fairfax Media, Luke Beck is the Associate Professor of Constitutional Law yep. at Monash University. Yes, he's written quite a lot on, mm. on, on uh, 
the um, chaplaincy cases and also on Section 116. Um, Indeed. Yes. And Gene might be of interest, and certainly the listeners might find this interesting as well, he's bringing it back straight to that. Section 116, Section yes. Section 116. Um, he's also very much aware of the work done by Richard Ely uh, in Under God and Caesar in hmm. the dogs case and just how... how um, how it turned Section 116 on its head. Very interesting writer. He is indeed. And he writes, actually, in um, The Age. He writes in The Age of the 9th of March. He says, despite what... Well, there are, as of course, as I mentioned, dozens, over, up to 30 federal MPs reportingly signing a petition to increase and then index and then make permanent into the future the whole National School Champions Program. Whether the budget can afford it or whether the budget can't, um, now, John Howard, of course, he mentions, first introduced the school chaplains pro- program about 12 years ago, in 2006, as part of the federal program. Now, under the program, money is provided to individual schools for them to engage a chaplain. The job of a chaplain is to, and I quote, support the emotional well-being of students by providing pastoral care services. Now, the High Court has twice struck down the chaplaincy program as illegal. In 2012, it ruled it was legal because the federal government was paying for chaplains programs without any legislation to authorise the spending. And to overcome the High Court decision back in 2012, the federal parliament quickly passed legislation to then authorise it. The chaplaincy program again was struck down in 2014. The federal government can only pass legislation dealing with certain subject matters. The High Court ruled that the school chaplains did not fall with any of those, and the GMLT section 96 said this is a state's matter. Now, to get around this lack of power to run the chaplaincy program, the federal government now grants money to the states for them to run it. Lots of federal government programs operate this way, with the states running programs on behalf of the federal government using federal money. Now, let's get to the nitty-gritty. Getting a job as a chaplain requires a person to be recognised or qualified for the role through, and I quote, formal ordination, commissioning by a recognised or having a recognised religious qualification or endorsement by a recognised or accepted religious institution. That's the job description. In other words, a person has to be religious and endorsed by a religious group in order to get a job as a chaplain. Yeah, well, well, that makes sense. That, that's, that's probably what that's probably what a chaplain is. But if that's the job description, atheists, of course, need not apply. Or, you know, uh, people of Islamic faith shouldn't apply to be a Christian chaplain. You know, they have, it's not just a religion; you have to be of the right one. Now, individual schools pick which religion they want their chaplain to be a member of, and then recruit a person from that religion for the job but it makes no practical sense to require a chaplain to have a particular religion. Mm. Chaplains are strictly prohibited in the school from religious proselytising, although there are sometimes reports of chaplains breaking the rules. The High Court, yeah, the High Court even commented that despite the religious-sounding job title, the actual work chaplains do has nothing to do with religion. <laughs> Justice Dyson Hayden wrote that the work of chaplains, and I quote, could have been done by persons who met a religious test. It could easily have been done by persons who did not. This is the High Court judgment. Mm. In other words, 
There is no genuine occupational requirement for a chaplain to be a member of any particular religion or to be religious at all. The federal government has simply decided that it wants all chaplains to be religious. Requiring a chaplain to be a member of a particular religion is inconsistent with the nature of public schools. Public schools are secular and open to everyone. A typical public school has students from a variety of religious backgrounds and students who are not religious at all. This is actually getting very close to the state saying that um, you know, there's a state church of some sort, but it's a peculiar sort of church. It's a church that doesn't proselytise, um, and these chaplains are members of this strange body, which is mythical almost. And public schools are still beholden to the Anti-Discrimination Act, aren't they? Exactly right. And so this is the legal point that we make. Now, now you, Dale, you've got it right on the money. You've got straight to the point. Forget about the Constitution at this stage. Let's talk about legislation. Mm. Requiring a chaplain to be a member of a particular religion working in a state school is illegal. Each state has anti-discrimination or equal opportunity legislation making it illegal to discriminate against a person on grounds of of religion in employment decisions. These anti-discrimination rules apply to public schools and their hiring decisions. As an aside, they do not apply to private schools and their hiring decisions because they have specific exemptions from these laws, which I think is wrong. But they do. But the law as it stands today, Dale, and you're right to say this, you cannot say, I'm afraid you can't work in our state school because you're the wrong religion. I'm afraid you can't work in our state school because you're not religious at all. That's what's happening right now. Now, public schools cannot advertise a teacher's job and require that only Hindu teachers are eligible to apply. Public schools cannot advertise a cleaner's job and require only that Baptists are eligible to clean the school. The reason is because that would be discrimination on the grounds of religion... In employment, it's exactly the same with chaplains. Yeah. Requiring a chaplain to, to be a member of a particular, particular religion is religious discrimination and completely illegal for public schools. It makes no difference that it is an individual school picking the religion rather than the federal or state government. So what he's saying is the federal, the federal or state government don't pick the religion of the chaplain in the school. The principal does. Just because the principal does it doesn't mean that the government's not liable. Because that, that, that would be the argument the government would use. Well, we're not discriminating. It's the principle that does. The principle not in terms of uh, the, the idea, but the principle in terms of the person mm. who is the principle. But they're getting directed to do so by Indeed, the government. they have to. The state anti-discrimination commissions should do something about public schools breaching the law. <laughs> if they don't, someone will eventually go to court and the school chaplaincy program will probably be ruled illegal for the third and hopefully final time. So it's not a constitutional argument, Jane. It's, the, it's, 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 it's a discrimination legal argument. And that was written by Luke Beck, who was an associate professor of constitutional law at Monash University. 
Um, I, of course, have been saying this for years, and the dogs have been saying this for years, but now is the time, I think, when if they're going to make this a permanent thing with this lobby and with this increasing in funding, these issues come to the fore, come to the fore once more. And, of course, when they do, they go, well, how come private schools can do that and public schools can't? And they go, well, no one should be able to do this, and the argument gets larger once again. You've been listening to The Dogs Programme here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. We'll return with some good news about a great state school. Every week on The Dogs Programme we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on The Dogs Programme. Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. It's good to have your company. It's good to have the company of Jill in particular, who contacted me just through the week. Thank you very much. To tell me all about a great little place called Glen Huntley Primary School. In her words, it's an awesome little community school and it's very child focused. Its teachers are engaged and engaging and incredibly hard working. And you know, Jill, I believe you. The whole school focuses on resilience, that is getting teachers, parents and students to fully engage with not just doing things but doing them again when they're hard, to come back to things, to do them, do them well and come back to them and do them well again. If you can't do them well, that's okay, we can do it again tomorrow. The principal, Libby Alessi, has been there for many years and is tireless in her advocacy for the schools, her advocacy for the children and her advocacy for literacy and, I would say, numeracy, because I'm going to tell you how well this school's doing in a minute. This school's doing awesome. And this school punches well above its weight with the outcomes, not just NAPLAN outcomes, but for social outcomes, because it's an incredibly diverse population. Incredibly, and, it's, and that diversity is not something that they work against. That's not something that they have to deal with. The diversity is not something that they have to sort of sort out along the way through so they can get all the wonderful outcomes. The diversity at Glen Huntry Primary School is the strength of the school. That's what drives it. That's what makes it. The differences between the students are what creates the exciting, resilient and wonderful learning environment they have down there in Carnegie. So she says, and this is, these are Jill's words, she says, we are so lucky to be able to call it our school. And because it's a state school, she can actually say that. And the word our is not ours and not yours. The word our is not just for us. The word our is not, mm, yeah, not the other. When she says the word, to call it our school, that's an inclusive term. If you come there, you are part of it. If you live there, it is your school. The only thing that means it's not your school is if you happen to live in, in Sydney. Well, then it can't be there because it's not Carnegie. But the word our is a truly inclusive word in a way that a private school can never be. The values of a place like Glen Huntley are values that I think are worth preserving because they are state school values. Free, universal and secular. So, okay, that's what she says, and I checked out this school, and I absolutely believe her. It's a wonderful little school, actually. I would have to say that the average wealth of the parents there is really quite substantial. Um, over 50% of the kids there come from the top quartile of Australian society, so Carnegie is a wealthy area, and the students reflect that. 
Um, less than 2% are from the bottom quartile, so there's very few poor students there. But I tell you what, the values and the stuff they go through doesn't necessarily mean what it means in other places. It is not a monoculture down there. There are 69% of the students come from a background where language other than English is spoken. So 70% of the kids aren't your sort of typical Anglo kids there. It's a big, wonderful mix. Now, there's about over 300 kids in this little primary school, Glen Hunter Primary School, and there's 18 teachers. And the full-time equivalent teaching starts actually 16.5, so they're big classes down there. That's big classes, and they're doing wonderful things. Now, how are they doing? Well, I will tell you the marks if you really want to know. I'll tell you the marks. Marks, brilliant. <laughs> they are spot on brilliant. Um, compared with all Australian students, as you would expect, every single year level is doing much better than all the students because, as we know in Australia, parental income is directly correlated with how well you do in your marks at school. Um, however, spelling in year three is way, way up. It's really quite extraordinary. Um, and their numeracy program up to year five is way, way above the national average, really, really significantly above, not just the national average, but schools, uh, sim- similar schools, uh, which is other schools that have a similar, um, similar income makeup, not demographic, similar income makeup. It's a pretty amazing school what they're doing down there. And they've been... The thing I think is the principal sets a culture and the principal's been there for a while and they have that energy and that strength. So I would have to say all in all, Glen Huntry Primary School has to be, has to be in every way, our great state school of the week. Want to defend government schools? We are the DOGS, D-O-G-S, Defenders of Government Schools. Every week on the DOGS program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. If you're a parent or if you're a kid or if you're involved in the school in any way whatsoever and you love your state school, give 3CR a call. We want to hear about these schools that we're defending. Brunswick Secondary State schools are great. Harkaway Primary School. Sunshine North Primary School. They're really concerned about the welfare of the kids and their growth as people as well as learning. Like you put on plays, you've got enrichment, you've got physical education, visual arts, languages, all that. In fact, is there a cooking? Actually an embracing of kids from disadvantaged backgrounds and with additional needs. More than half of your kids are from some of the poorest families in Australia. Yeah, definitely. That's the community and that's who we're servicing and that's that's who we welcome into the school. Outdoor play is linked to healthier and happier children. This, in turn, leads to better grades. In the weekly assemblies and stuff, they have a little thing, uh, you've been caught being good, and they have a a value of the week each week, and so it's not just words that he's actually... So so what do the teachers do when it's a building site? Yeah, they kick themselves out of their own staff room and turn it into a classroom. Just a really nice culture and an emphasis on social skill building as well as learning. Quite a range of intellectual ability and kids with mental health diagnoses. Refugee kids, kids who have not been in the country very long, don't necessarily start off with a Positive relationships with each other, with the teachers and with the community. And they run a, a breakfast club. There's a recognition that some kids don't get breakfast and so there's, there's food on. If you are involved in a state school and it's a great school, we'd love to hear from you so we can talk about it and tell the world. Leave a message for the dogs at 3CR on 9419 State schools are great schools. Great state schools. Welcome back to the Dogs Program. Yeah, so give us a call. Let us know. Drop us a line, like Jill did. Let us know all about Glen Huntley Glen Huntley Primary School down there in Carnegie. 
because these things need to be celebrated. It's always nice to finish on up here on the Dogs Program. We like to try and do that because there's so many fights that we have to fight. Chaplaincy ones come up again now. Well, whack a mole. Every time a problem comes up, we're here, the Dogs Program, to sort it out. Um, and so really... Um, They've never been backward in coming forward. Indeed, indeed. And it's nice to have Jean back from her holidays mm. here on the radio as well. But until next week, when the fight continues... Um, you have to contact us through the, our website until, until, until next Saturday um, at www.adogs.info or indeed if you're listening to us on, on, on our podcast, then um, yeah, you can just go back and listen to another one because we're fascinating. Hurrah! <laughs> <laughs> indeed. But um, until next week, if you're listening to us live on 3CR 855 on the AM dial, until next week, it's bye for now. Says he.